why do we not understand that having individuals who are healthy in their understanding of Christ and their understanding of life are the best brand ambassadors? Because I can tell you it's not cute, but I'm glad to be here. It's not easy, but I'm thankful for the walk and for the journey. And if we don't give people that opportunity, why would people want to join? Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe that the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I am your host, Ben Tapper, and I'm joined by the one, the only, Matt Burke out of Northeast. Hey, Matt. Hey, what's going on, Ben? I don't know that I'm the one and the only. If you Google my name, I think it's an Australian footballer that pops up at the top. So, you know. You're the only one in my book, Matt, and that's what matters. (laughs) Appreciate that. (laughs) Hey, everybody. We're glad that you're here. We have a really good interview today with somebody that is a favorite of the Center for Congregations in our podcast. We've had her before. Her name is Amy Larimore. We have a conversation about fundraising. And the fun thing about this is that I had a very specific thought of where this was going to go of like, you know, your typical listicle of like how you raise money for a community ministry. (laughs) The conversation was much broader than that, but thankfully so, because I think we're going to get into a lot of really good things that surround the idea of community ministry and philanthropy. And so very much looking forward to having that conversation. Before we jump into that, though, real quick, Ben, how does this question, how does this topic show up in the work that you're doing in central Indiana? I think it's just showing up because we have more and more congregations playing with the boundary between their congregation and the community. And so as they are rethinking or navigating that or explaining their understanding to us, Here at the center, we are having to kind of rethink, navigate, and figure out, okay, how do we need to shift our own understanding of where the congregation ends and the community starts and vice versa? And then how might that affect the programming that we do, the grants that we offer, the educational events that we create? So we're learning, I think, a lot alongside and from the congregations that we're serving and then doing some reflection on our own. Yeah, I agree. I think we're seeing that as well in the Northeast region as congregations reach out and they're really asking, how do we make an impact and what does it mean to be a part of the community that we are situated in? And really thankful for the conversation that's coming up because I think it helps clarify some of those questions and moves us along in that direction. I do want to mention that the interview is really more focused on community ministry in general, as opposed specifically to fundraising. But Amy is doing two Ed events for us, February 1st and February 7th of 2023, that are very specifically focused on the fundraising component of community ministry. And so if you are listening to this before those dates, you can register for those at centerforcongregations.org go to our workshops page. If you're listening after that, we do have them recorded and we can send you a link to the recording of those events or of that event. It's a single event that we're holding two different times. But if you want to email us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org, 
we're happy to send you the link to the recording so that you can take advantage of Amy's expertise. Absolutely. So we're not going to hold you up any longer because like Matt said, the conversation with Amy was rich. And so without further ado, here's our conversation with Amy Larimore. All right, everybody, welcome back. We are here with Amy Larimore, who is the Director of Learning Services for the Dorothy A. Johnson Center for Philanthropy. Welcome, Amy. Hello. Well, thank you for being here. We're going to talk today about fundraising for community ministry. That's definitely something that comes up at the center a good bit as congregations think about their reach and think about meeting the needs of their communities. One of the main questions they have is about funding. So that's going to be our focus for today. So I'm curious, Amy, we have kind of a whole spectrum of congregations, some who are very much already involved in community ministry, those who are just thinking about it. And I'd love to start at the basic end first for those congregations that maybe haven't done a robust community ministry before, but are thinking about moving that direction. What are some of the challenges related to funding for community ministry as a congregation gets that started? Well, I think it's such a critical and important question. I think about where we find ourselves in the economy and in the world right now. And the reality is that uh, ministry is expensive and the way that we worship is not the same as it used to be. I don't use the language post-pandemic because I don't believe anything has come to closure. I just think we're entering a new season and what worship looks like. So if you add to that, the fact that community ministry means that you have to A, understand and know your community. I know that it may not show up for everyone, but sometimes we exist in a place and we actually don't know the people around us. We don't know our neighbors. We don't know the stores that are thriving. We don't have an understanding of the community institutions. We may see leaders or people with titles, but we may not understand people with influence. And so when I think about community ministry, I think about who do you really know and understand? And when you think about the cost, um, one of the challenges can be um, whether or not your church or congregation wants to invest in the community. I don't assume that the membership is representative of the community. Sometimes our congregations have to reconcile. Are the people who worship with us living, working, and breathing in the neighborhood with where we reside? And are the resources that we're collecting uh, for the purpose of enriching, strengthening, and expanding the community? Some people don't align community ministry with congregational health. I think they're directly tied to each other, but I don't assume that people believe and understand that. Yeah, can you say a little bit more about that? How do you view that connection or how do you see that connection happening? It used to be that we worshiped in the place where we lived. And so churches were made up of people who were surrounding the church in that area. The reality is that we don't uh, work and live in the same communities any longer. 
And with virtual worship and the pandemic, sometimes we don't go to a physical location at all. So we have these infrastructures, sometimes these mega buildings that need a lot of upkeep that are not being used effectively, are not being used often, are not being used to host people in the community, maybe not even being used for the people who need the building the most. But what I would say is that when we think about community and congregation, um, we have to wonder who and how are you defining constituency? Who are the people you're trying to touch? Who are the lives you're trying to impact? And that could be your neighbors, your physical neighbors. That could be the children who live in the community that could be the people who work and rely on the economy that is associated with the neighborhood of your church. That could be stakeholders, people who care deeply. Part of your community can mean people who are not in physical proximity, people who you have intentionally built relationships with. But I think that that topic is so diverse that sometimes we say community or neighbor, and we assume everybody's thinking the same thing. When a church tells me, I want to do community ministry, your community, a community, the neighborhood of your church, the people who need it most, a particular group that meets at your church, I invite people. And then I simply usually just shut up and listen. Tell me more about how you define community, because what I found is that we often don't define it the same. At the center, we're trying to navigate or we're trying to redefine not only congregation, but thus also ministry for ourselves. So as we think about how we historically work, you know, we define congregation as like a body of people in a building within a religious tradition, right? But the more we work with BIPOC congregations, the more we realize, oh, for these folks in these communities, their definition of congregation isn't that different than their definition of community. Like they're one and the same. And so if we're going to really serve them, we also have to reflect on our definition of congregation and community and then ask some of the questions that you're talking about, Amy, you know, the who, the what, the why. And then that changes how we support these congregations because we're defining our terms differently. And so there's some learning that I think we're doing. And then as we do it, we can then help other congregations also step into that same learning. But there are a lot of folks that are just becoming aware of of those type of questions, which is you know, everyone moves to their own timeline and it feels kind of tragic because I think it's representative of where Western American, specifically like white Christianity, white mainland Christianity has drifted over the last 40 or 50, maybe even longer, a longer term of time, that we have to actually define what community ministry is. When, if you look back at the gospels, ministry was inherently communal, like it was inherently tied to a geographic location that represented the people. So it just, it's a weird thing that we have to define it. And yet it is really important work. So I'm so grateful to be in conversation with good conversation partners, because it means you can edit out what you don't need. But the three words that come to mind are congregation, community, and connectivity. And what I would share is that the lack of connectivity is apparent as we see ministry happening in congregations, people being out of touch. So you can be really excited about meeting a need that you see externally and being completely oblivious to needs within your congregation. I've seen it more than once where it was really exciting to think about 
We're going to do a food drive or a toy drive. We're going to do this because of what we believe and perceive another group or audience needs. And meanwhile, there can be extensive needs within the congregation, which is, by the way, also part of your community, that people can miss because they're thinking about, well, who are the quote unquote less fortunate that I need to meet their needs? And so when we think about power, when we think about privilege, when we think about defining ministry, I think that it calls for us to just think more deeply about, well, who are you really trying to serve? And I think all of those audiences can need support. And so when we start talking about resources, it's one of the reasons why ministry costs so much. There are so many needs that we're trying to meet. And the reality is that partnership, understanding where we specialize or where we can really have the most impact, being disciplined about what we see and what we understand and what we're gifted to do can just be really important. You know, as I'm thinking about ministry, I'm thinking about the difference between meeting a need, meeting the symptom of a problem, and then dealing with the actual problem itself. So for example, if you are a congregation in Flint, Michigan, Right. You might see a need for clean drinking water. And so maybe you decide to launch a fundraising campaign to buy hundreds of thousands of cases of bottled water and distribute them. Okay. Another congregation in Flint might say, yes, the need is clean drinking water, but if we don't stop it at the source, right, then this problem is just going to continue. And so we actually need to funnel money into lobbying the people we got to lobby to get these money for these pipes to be replaced, treated appropriately, which involves political mess. You know, it, it's a different type of fundraising for a different target, but for the same outcome. So as we're thinking about like fundraising for community ministry, how do congregations begin to think about that and navigate what they're raising money for? Are they best equipped to treat the symptoms or the actual problem? Or is that not even the right question? So I'm glad you made it complex because I would have also integrated into that example. Are you providing clean water so that people can drink? and live in a healthy way? Are you helping to solve the root cause because you recognize that the problem will come again? Or do you understand that as people who identify as following Christ, our witness in the world means that people have to see us as solution providers and we need to point them back to God. Mm. So part of it for me would be Do people even look to the church anymore as a solution provider? And do they look to the people in the building or the people in the airwaves or the people in the pulpit? Or do we point them back to God in our efforts to create solutions for quality of life? And for me, I'm a little concerned. I'm all about the practical. I mean, I want to know what we want to discuss what we want to decide and what we want to do. I'm all about it. But I also am really concerned when we don't think about how does the next generation identify this action with the love of God? How do they identify it with spirituality, with church, with connectivity, and with gathering in a society where young people are really figuring out alternative ways to gather and where it is important for many to say that they're spiritual but not religious, and for people to walk away from the institution of church 
I want the church to not just think about the water or solving the water crisis, but who created the water and what is the role of our faith and our belief and our connectivity in the water crisis? You started it then. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to talk about that, then I would say that, you know, I think about how we fund ministry and fund ministry in community as an opportunity to repeatedly ask, to what end? You're identifying a need for resources, to what end? And oftentimes, I think we're thinking about how do we solve the problems? And I think there's so many problems to be solved, but I'm also really, really eager to reorient the conversation to also talk about what that means for a belief in Christ, a belief in God. I think it's critically important that we not only pay attention to the immediate needs of the community and our congregations, and I'm really encouraged and inspired when congregations are thinking about the source and getting to the heart of the matter and the heart of the problem. And I hope in all of our commitment to well-doing that we don't lose sight of pointing individuals to a faith life, a faith community, a God who is omnipotent in a way that means that people are curious about faith and curious about God and curious about connectivity in ways that we benefit from as people of faith. So as a congregation starts to do this work and ask these questions, I'm wondering what impact it has or it could have on the types of funding they're seeking out or, or the places they're seeking funding from. To what extent is it necessary to answer some of these questions for yourself and then to try to identify funders or funding sources that would be in like a value alignment with your congregation? Or is it more important just to find the money and then use it for how you're going to use it regardless of the values of the funder? I think it's dangerous to just find the money because the money typically has red tape and expectations associated with it. As we're thinking about funding and getting the resources necessary to be solution-minded in our communities and our congregations, I think we have to diversify our partners and who we look to connect with. There are individuals and organizations who would say, I don't support churches or I don't support congregations. You support healthy water. You support people in the neighborhood being able to come to work. You support health and safety because your employees live here. Let's really talk brass tacks about what our shared goals are. And I've seen really effective, effective fundraising from people who just said, like, let's just talk for a minute. If your people are not healthy, if people cannot come to work, if your neighborhood surrounding your building or your office is compromised, you're not going to get the return on investment that you're thinking about. How might we come together? And I think it should be said that our congregations have power that we oftentimes don't bring to the table in those conversations. So it's not simply about what I need from you or what I'm seeking from you. It's what goals are you trying to advance? We were talking earlier about ready goals and racial equity, diversity, and inclusion. I may simply know more about a topic or an issue, and my expertise is not free. 
So maybe what we need to do is think about the return on investment for the ways that I can help you around your language, around your approach, around your business practices. And that return on investment can be really, really critical because I can tell you the thing that makes me itch a little bit is when we reach out to individuals and congregations and we say things like, I'd like to pick your brain, Mm. my expertise, my experience, my history, my skill set, those things are not free. And so um, the opportunity for partnership should include a reality and an understanding that I bring gifts to the table and I don't simply need something from you, but together we can make a much healthier community. I appreciate the honesty about finding values. And as, as someone who's had people ask, hey, let me pick your brain. I affirm what you're saying. Like, yeah, I mean, sure, you can pick my brain, but there is a price tag associated with what you find as you're picking, you know? And what I hear you pointing to is like, how do we think and talk about value? You know, when you're engaging in the conversation around fundraising, we immediately assume value is held in the dollars that are exchanged, the currency that's exchanged. But as I hear you shift to think about partnership, I'm sensing an invitation to expand how we interpret value. And so I'm wondering if you can just expound upon that for a moment, Amy. That's good. I welcome that. I think as I have spent much of my career in philanthropy, we talk about love of humankind, but we often are navigating the reality of what it means to raise resources, fundraising for congregations and communities. And I think that we, and rightly so, have associated power with money. So individuals who have the money set the rules and they dictate how the dollars will be used. So I'm not a idealist. I would say I'm pretty pragmatic about the fact that people invest with expectation about return on investment. And as people of faith, we have to get just much more exact about our value in the marketplace, in addition to our faith values, which I believe are are non-negotiables. So that when we come to a table, when we come to a conversation, part of what we say is, this is the value I bring in this situation. This is my experience. This is my lived experience. This is my expectation. And by the way, I want to do work together, but I want to do it as your partner, not as your beneficiary. Mm. Um, There is power to understanding being both a benefactor and a beneficiary. And I think at different seasons, we explore both, but being able to just be really intentional. That means looking at the financial institutions that you're doing business with, looking at the vendors that you contract with, looking at who serves as your supplier and inviting them to reinvest. And sometimes I think we miss the opportunity to say, there are certainly things that I need, but there's opportunity in working with us. And I think this conversation that you're speaking of feels like it's particularly important for people of color in terms of like this pivot to the invitation to partnership rather than being benefactors. Even if you're, you know, a black pastor in a predominantly white city, I think it's easy. You have some relative power, but it's easy to kind of be sidelined and cut out of the other spheres of influence. And so if you can kind of invite that level set at the beginning of an engagement or conversation, then it might pave the way for the expectation to be that like, no, we're coming to this as peers to solve a common problem rather than I'm coming to you 
to kind of give me, for lack of a better term, a handout rather than inviting me into the mechanisms of decision-making value and influence. I think that that's critical. I really avoid, uh, to the extent that I'm capable, I avoid cliches. So I'm not talking about a seat at the table or bringing your own table or having your own table. I really think it is um, reflecting on who we are in God's image and being more clear about who we are and what we need to do the work that God has called us to do. And with that clarity comes a level of confidence that says, I think there's a possibility that we could be really great collaborators and partners on solving these issues. Here are some of the things that I know. My audience reach, my ability to impact people, my accessibility to the community, my brand, these things are valuable. And it seems as if together we might more effectively do the work that's necessary for a healthy city, for a healthy community, for healthy employees. And to me, that just is a more authentic way than saying, um, what am I going to write to you for? And what am I going to ask you to sponsor or support? I'm not above asking for sponsorship or support, but it's always an exchange. And so understanding what you're willing to give for what you're trying to get. Well, as we come to the close of our time here, Amy, where can people find you, find your work or follow you? Are there any places in social media or online that folks can keep up with you? Well, I tell you, that's a little dangerous. I have a love-hate relationship with social media. I'll tell you that I tend to do a little more writing now on LinkedIn because I believe in just the work space that we're in and bringing your whole self. And so people will know um, that I am certainly an African-American woman of faith and executive leader in the academy, someone who believes deeply in giving and faith and culture and the intersection of those things. I certainly do serve at the Dorothy A. Johnson Center for Philanthropy at Grand Valley State University. And so I can be reached via email at Laramora at gvsu.edu. It's so basic, but people are like, what? So it's just like most of my last name with an A on the end and reaching me at GVSU is an opportunity too. I've been consulting in our greater community for over two decades, which just ages myself as Allied Solutions, and that's A-L-L-Y-D Solutions. And you can find me in the sphere of the world in that way too. All right. We'll make sure to put that information in our show notes. Amy, it was wonderful to have you back. We really appreciate you being here sharing your wisdom and your expertise with us. And I think that this podcast episode will be really thought-provoking for a lot of people thinking about the community ministry space. So thank you again for your time. Well, I certainly appreciate it. And I'm excited um, when we think about being solution-minded and Christ-centered, no matter what the ministry might be. Hmm. Love that. We just finished our conversation with Amy Laramore, and typically this is the portion of the podcast where Matt and I will kind of debrief on our thoughts and experiences, but 
you know, Matt was feeling a little wild today and he wondered what it would be like to just invite Amy back for this portion as well and just to talk with her about our collective experience of the interview. And so that's what we're doing. So Amy, we're going to start with you. I'm wondering, you know, what your experience of the interview was and if there's anything that you kind of wanted to be able to circle back to or wish you could have thrown in there as we were talking. Well, I'm always really excited to talk about the importance of securing resources for ministry, but I get a little saddened if people don't have practical tips about how to move forward. So I can talk about the theory all I like about how we understand ourselves and how we show up to different relationships and partnerships. But some people will say, that and $7 will buy me coffee. So what do I need to do to actually raise more resources? And so I'm glad to continue the conversation. I think it's important for us to diversify our partners, to diversify who we're talking to, but also to be really intentional about our needs. I think that means crossing denominational lines, making sure that we tap into corporate America and this new emergence of ethics and accountability and to see where there are opportunities for alignment to welcome people into solving problems that exist beyond their faith beliefs. And those types of things are just really important to me. We need financial resources and sometimes in an effort to get programmatic support. We don't have the operating dollars necessary to even stay afloat. So I know that that is a real issue. And I just never try to leave a conversation without acknowledging that. Yeah, I think that's, you know, really important and something that I was trying to keep in mind during the interview. You know, what are the practical pieces that we can point people back to? But having said that, I think one of the reasons I enjoy talking with you so much, Amy, is because you do go to that theoretical place. And as your typical frustrated with the church millennial, I really wish congregations would do that more. Like, yeah, I feel like once a year we need to revisit why we're even here, (laughs) you know, Uh, if we're not doing that, then like, what are we doing? And so I really appreciated you taking us back to that why, to the what, to the where, to those sorts of fundamental questions of community ministry. And I think of ministry in general. So I feel like it's a good time. Yeah. And one of the things that hit me, Amy, in the conversation as you were talking about thinking about meeting the needs of the community, meaning the people who are part of the congregation, this may not be a fair characterization, but I'm just going to share how I felt in the religious tradition that I grew up in and kind of my gut reaction about community ministry and giving is that if you're familiar with the idea of centered sets and bounded sets, does that ring any bells? So with faith and congregational community being a bounded set means either you're in or you're out, right? And so the people who are part of the congregation, you're in, and then community ministry is doing ministry for those who are out. And it's almost like once you're in, it's not that you're ignored, but you're almost viewed as a source of funds as opposed to much else other than that. And so then the congregation, you know, the way that you do ministry is you get your people who are in to provide funding to do something that's outside. And it's almost this transactional relationship. And again, that's my perception. That may not have been the hearts of the people that I was involved in growing up. So if anybody's listening to this that I grew up with, I'm not throwing stones. I'm just saying this is the way it felt. And it's interesting to change that and think about what are the needs in the building 
but then also that connect with needs outside of the building because they're not unique. So if people are a part of the congregation and have specific needs or ministry needs that need to be met, those are representative of others in the community as well. And that's a bit of a ramble, but it made me think about my experience and how what you're offering is a different way of framing what the congregation is there for. So we are in danger of being besties for a really long time. And let me tell you why. (laughs) I think it is really critical to understand that as believers of Christ, that we are the brand ambassadors for faith, for God, often for our congregation. And if you have individuals whose mental health needs are not met, cannot access counseling, who are struggling financially, but repeatedly asked to give, where there is no support or no ability to be transparent, then we effectively, not for your experience, but we could foster a group of liars about what it means to be a faith. Your problems are not solved. Things are not magical. There's nobody coming out of a genie to make it all right. And as a result of that, then what do you do when you have anxiety? What do you do when you have a crisis in faith? I lost my mom in 2020, the day before Thanksgiving. And I have had an entirely new experience of faith community, the reality that grief is not linear, and an understanding of the many ways and the many opportunities we grieve throughout life. If in our faith communities, we don't attend to those things, it is an opportunity for people to seek solutions in the world. Why is that the case? Why do we not understand that having individuals who are healthy in their understanding of Christ and their understanding of life are the best brand ambassadors, because I can tell you it's not cute, but I'm glad to be here. It's not easy, but I'm thankful for the walk and for the journey. And if we don't give people that opportunity, why would people want to join? Yeah, it's almost like, it was funny, I was editing myself and I wasn't going to say anything. I wasn't going to say this, but this is is our reflection part. (laughs) It's almost as if In my experience of congregational life, especially in the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s, the church tried to take a lot from the business world. And there were some good things that came from that, I mean, in terms of structure and ways of functioning. But I think some of the bad stuff came with it, that congregants are like employees who are the widgets who make the thing run and therefore kind of get passed over in terms of care. And I think that's exactly right. So can you be a witness to the good news of your faith if you haven't been impacted by the good news of your faith? Because witness means you've observed it, right? You've lived it. You've been a part of it. And so if you're part of a congregational community, what has that good news meant to you? And then you can bear witness to what that means to others in the world or others in the congregation. And I don't know that that's been a focus in the way that it needs to be. So you brought up two just really critical points. One about just our adoption of business. Even I talk about return on investment. 
So I'm not immune to it. This idea of adapting business practices for the church, for nonprofit, whatever the case may be. And you talk about that and you talk about your story, your personal experience. So two things that came to mind, you know, when I was in school, they made us read Good to Great by Jim Collins. And I was so attentive to reading it till I realized most of the companies in the first book went out of business. <laughs> You know, we lift up these models and celebrate these models and we never read like the after effects of, well, what happened? You know, we take life as a slice. That's social media. We take a moment in time, but there are lots of other moments that we don't illuminate. And that's the case with businesses as well. In fundraising, at least if you're good at it, you'll talk about time, talent, treasure, testimony, and ties. And I think we spend so much time talking about time, talent, and treasure. We forget the importance of being able to share your story authentically and then who you're connected to. Your ties in the community, your ties in the world, all of those things are really critical. So the ties I celebrate, I'm grateful for um, both of you as conversation partners today. Definitely. It's definitely mutual. Are there any resources that you think would be useful to point congregational leaders to as they're thinking about community ministry and identifying value? I do believe that there are emerging pieces. So I've been reading lately Emergent Strategy, and I just, it's challenging me to think differently. And I've been inviting faith leaders, people in the academy, people in philanthropy, people on boards to dig more deeply into Emergent Strategy and what that looks like and to have conversations, oftentimes uncomfortable conversations. And I've really enjoyed that. I also am really appreciative of American generosity. I was part of a recent gathering of faith leaders talking about philanthropy. And usually I'm really saddened by the lack of diversity in those spaces. And I can't say that I felt much different in that experience. But I do have a great regard for Patricia Herzog, the book is American Generosity, Who Gives and Why. And I was just fascinated at digging deeper into our generational differences and how that shows up and how we understand our patterns of giving. You mentioned being a millennial and I laugh. People come and ask me to talk about uh, millennials on boards. And I'm like, if you just do the math, you could probably figure out I'm not a millennial. And so <laughs> I invite people on a regular basis, like bring me in for your first conversation, but could we have a couple? And can I bring some of my friends and colleagues to talk about their personal experience of being invited to places that really wanted to use them and abuse them and did not want to hear their voice? Can we grow to a point where you understand that I'm not the spokesperson for the audience you're trying to get to, but I'm certainly happy to be a catalyst for better thought. So if you ask me about resources, I'm going to always say diversify your conversation partners. I'm going to encourage you to read things like American Generosity and Emergent Strategy. And I'm going to say, I'm trying to do the same thing the way you've always done it is really the definition of insanity. If we keep doing things the same way, the environment has changed, society has changed, people have changed. 
And we need to pay attention to what that means, even although our faith remains steadfast. And uh, that's serendipitous insight. Let me plug our next episode. So as Amy talks about bringing other conversation partners to the table, we've got a great episode coming up in a couple of weeks that we do exactly that. We invite in a millennial who's also a marketer and communications person and discuss what it means to really assess the needs of an audience that you're trying to target. And Amy, that was a beautiful segue into the episode in two weeks, which was not planned. It was beautiful. Well, I'd like to think it all aligns for a reason. I do and do. That's right. So Ben, did you have any resources that you wanted to bring? This recommendation of emergent strategy might be the single favorite resource that has been recommended on this podcast from my perspective. So I'm so excited that you are pointing folks towards that. It's a phenomenal read. Adrian Marie Brown, who's the author of it, is a phenomenal person and thinker and strategist and organizer. So as a congregation, as a board member, whatever niche of life you find yourself in, if you can incorporate the elements of emergent strategy into what you're doing, you will find yourself working on behalf of and alongside the people that you say you want to serve just automatically. So I'm just going to second that resource. Great. Well, I'm going to add a couple of things at the end of this. One is that the Center for Congregations ran a special grant initiative a while back around community ministry. And we have an article on the things that we learned about mutual ministry and doing ministry with. I'm going to include that in the show notes. And then I also want to bring up Kitchen Table Giving by William Enright. It's a book and has a study and action guide at the end of each chapter with additional resources. And so you can find that at the CRG. Remember our congregational resource guide, thecrg.org. There are all kinds of resources available for all kinds of aspects of congregational life. And so I just wanted to highlight that book and we'll have that also in the show notes. But there are hundreds of other resources, actually several thousand resources on that website. Um, What I would share with you is that Kitchen Table Giving is not only a fabulous read, but it's written by my mentor, Bill Enright. And so Bill, the founding director of Lake Institute on Faith and Giving, had a heart for congregations and everything he created points to that. You can see in the very essence of his being a desire for people of faith to be stronger about how they understand resources. And so that put a smile in my spirit and heart when you mentioned it. Much of my early years at the intersection of faith and giving were really as a result of the fact that Bill is not just an ally, but he's a supporter, a sponsor, a co-conspirator. And so he believes in putting in the work and taking the risk on behalf of someone else. So as your audience thinks about what they'll read and how they orient in this season, I could not think of a better recommendation from a better person out of our local faith community as Bill Enright. Um, I was just thrilled to hear you make the reference. Awesome. Yeah. And you also mentioned the Lake Institute on Faith and Giving. We'll also include that in the show notes because that is another resource that is out there. So We definitely want to thank the generosity of the Lily Endowment for making the work that we do possible and making this podcast possible. We appreciate the work that our audio editor, Jaden, does in keeping us sounding great. And if you want to learn more about things that are happening at the center, like the Ed event that's coming up with Amy, you can find out information on our website, centerforcongregations.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the Center for Congregations to keep up to date on what's happening. 
Yep, and remember those events with Amy are February 1st and February 7th of 2023. If you are listening to this podcast after that date, reach out to us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org and we can provide you with a link to the recording of those events. And finally, we want to thank our listeners in Grand Rapids. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate your support. If you have questions, comments, or recommendations on things you want to hear us talk about, email us. We'd love to hear that. Amy, are there any shout outs you want to do before we sign off? Well, I tell you, you have been exciting partners during today. So I'm grateful for just the opportunity to be in conversation. And for those that are not only in Grand Rapids, but who follow philanthropy, I'm certainly happy to be seated at the Dorothy A. Johnson Center for Philanthropy and look forward to what our next steps will be as a learning community. So with that, we'll conclude this episode. Come back in a couple weeks for our next interview. But for now, signing off, I'm Ben Tapper. And I'm Matt Burke. Thanks, everybody. 